Hello and welcome to another episode of Working Overtime, the bi-weekly advice-focused carrot to working's mince pie. I'm your host, June Thomas. And hark how the bells, sweet carol bells, all seem to say, I am your other host, Isaac Butler. So uh, what are we talking about today, June? Well, Isaac, I want to talk about, this will not come as a shock, making changes to creative habits and practices. Wow. How many steps are there? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> your plan or that you've already developed. There are 15 steps and there are 25 books that influence me in this. Okay, great. No. Okay, we're recording this at the very end of 2023 and you will not be surprised to hear I am one of those people who loves to spend time looking back at the year just ended and pondering the year ahead. So this feels like a good time to assess my creative processes and consider making changes. Mm. I do want to mention here that in my mind, at least, this kind of process tweak isn't the same thing as a New Year resolution. Incidentally, you can find the episode of Working in which Isaac and I made our creative resolutions for 2024 in the Working feed from December 31st, 2023. For me, resolutions are sort of stretch goals. I will be a better person if I do this thing in the next 12 months, that kind of stuff. Whereas the tweaks I'm talking about here are at the absolute center of the way I work day in, day out. Does that distinction make sense to you? And is this a process you typically put yourself through at the beginning of a new year? That makes sense to me, I think. So it's like a resolution is like, I'm going to read 100 books next year or whatever. Whereas this is more like, what's the day-to-day habitual stuff that needs to change? You know, I'll be honest, I am not a person who like on New Year's Eve is like, let's reflect on the year ahead and the year behind or whatever. You know, I, I often mm-hmm. have to be asked to do that. I, I don't mind doing it, but it has to be yeah, asked yeah. of me or I'm reminded. I am more of a person who's like constantly tweaking and changing things and revising. Often it's because one method of working just just stops being functional for whatever reason. It just just breaks down. And then I have to like rotate to another one and then that breaks down and so on and so forth. David Foster Wallace actually talked about this in an interview once. Maybe it was in The Believer. I don't totally remember. But, you know, he would work somewhere until he started procrastinating too much and then he'd move mm. locations. And so by by that point, he was like in his local library. Right. So yeah. for me, it's like I work at home until the PlayStation is too <laughs> tempting every day. And then I move to a cafe. So then I'm at that cafe until I know everyone at the cafe and it becomes a social space to work, not a working place. Right. Then I might move back home or to another cafe or whatever it is. So it's like that kind of stuff I am doing all the time. Well, I just want to do an aside here and say, if you ever fancy reading a productivity book, what you said makes me think you would not totally hate The 12 Week Year by Brian Moran and Michael Lennington. So if that craving ever comes to you. Wait, 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 June, June, there are 52 weeks in a year. I hate to break it to you here. (laughs) Mm, Is there though? Read that book and we'll come back and talk about it. All right. All right. To get back to the topic at hand, maybe it will help if I share the kind of thing I'm talking about. So as I mentioned on the New Year Resolution episode, go back and listen, people, if you haven't already. I'm very conscious that now that my first book is out of my hands and slowly making its way into readers, it will be in bookstores at the end of May. The way I spend my time should change. I'm not currently in heads down, deadline looming, blinders on, just get words on paper, panic mode. I'm in read and sit and think and talk to people mode. And that demands a different kind of focus. It doesn't need as much sitting at the computer obsessing about word count. And it requires more time reading books and trying to make mental connections. Over the next 
nine to 12 months, I don't have to and I don't want to spend as much time at my computer, but I've gotten into a really deep rut of a habit of doing that. I find it hard to do things during the day that don't involve staring at my monitor. And on some ways, that makes sense. You know, I've pretty much met my deadline. I like how the book turned out. A part of my lizard brain wants to keep doing the same thing. You know, why change a winning pattern? But I don't need to do that kind of work right now. It will serve me better to read books and track things down in a way that is much less desk-based. Isaac, you've experienced the demands of finishing a book and the shift to that next phase. Did you make any of those kinds of adjustments at that stage? And do you have any tips for me? So I will say at first that I don't think I did a great job at this, honestly, mm. uh, with the last book. I think I, I'm learning a lot from my not great experience of that. I just started to get really, I don't know, anxious, maybe stressed out in a crisis about my identity, even yeah. about the fact that I had just done this monumental thing and that I actually didn't have much to do at that point other than caretake that thing. You know, it's like, well, well yeah. what's next? Am I ever going to write again? My brain feels broken. Why can't I read a book? You know, it was just like I was kind of in a panic about getting back to normal instead of just living with where I was. So one thing I'm going to give you advice on right now is to literally just take some time off, you know, and it can be significant if you have the money to do it. Right. It could be two weeks, you know, but just like actually take some time off. OK, that's time that you're not answering emails about the book or whatever. You know, I mean, you still have to do working. Sorry about that, June. But, you know, maybe the week when you don't record for working, you could like literally just do nothing that week or go somewhere mm -hmm. or whatever. So that's one thing. Take time off. But the other thing is, you know, just recognize it's okay to be fallow and to just read books and recharge and be kind to yourself. Try to take the pressure off. And the other thing that I would say is you wrote your book mostly at home, right? Yes, like, uh, yes. So get out of the house. That's the other thing is just try to forbid yourself from going home for long stretches of time. Yeah, you want to read. That's great. Go read in a cafe. You know, mm. just get out of the space where the work happened until that space becomes not just the space where the work happened. Does that make sense? And that'll kind of transform your relationship to both and it will give you time to recharge. Because if you're anything like me, if you are like, I'm just going to bring a book into my office and read, you know, you'd be like, my computer's there. Should I be yeah. writing an essay? Should I be pitching something? What's going on with me? Am I still a writer? Is this the last thing I'll ever write? You know what I mean? Like, like that monologue starts up. And I, I, I just think that spaces hold associations for us. And so moving that space can be really, really useful. You're killing me softly, Isaac. And I, <laughs> in many ways, I think it's bad that my computer is in the bedroom. Right. Because it's a weird association. It's it's like you don't want this to be the like, oh God, I've got to blah blah place. On the other hand, it does give me a separation with the living room. So I actually can go and read in the living room. You know, I also have a desktop computer now. Right. So yes, I do still have a laptop, but I don't really sit with it, you know, on the couch with me. So I know just what you mean. And yes, those are very familiar internal monologues yeah, that you just described. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Are there any other habit shifts that you tried to tackle in your creative life? I will be really honest, just because you mentioned this earlier. I have grown to hate my computer. I hate oh my God. looking at it. 
I never want to spend time on it. I actively try to avoid it, like on an emotional level. I mean, like it's yes. very <laughs> hard for me to sit down and write at my computer. I mean, I'll do it. Like I, I've made my deadlines and stuff. Do you know what I mean? I just mm-hmm. really yep. hate it. And so I have some workarounds for this. One of them is I try to write on my iPad. I mean, it's still a computer, right? It's just, but it's like, just looks different, you know? So I have one of those keyboard Bluetooth cases for my iPad Mm -hmm, and I'll write mm -hmm. on that in Google Docs. I'll draft on that and then I'll kind of go back into my computer and finish it on Microsoft Word because I don't actually like Google Docs very much. You know, things like that. Like, but I I really fucking hate my computer. And so the new solution, because I really need to be on it a lot in the future because it's time to actually start writing this book while I research it instead of just purely researching it, is I'm actually going to get a new computer. My computer is a decade old. Its hard drive is full, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and so forth. And so my hope is, is that by getting like a new one, it will start to feel like a different experience. And then I can rediscover actually enjoying working at my computer. Wow. That seems very smart. And yeah, I think that will work. And we'll be back with more thoughts on changing creative working patterns after this. Hey, listeners, it's Isaac Butler here. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You know, we would actually really love for you to be a part of the show. And the way that you could do that is by writing us or calling us with your thoughts, whether it's the kind of guests you'd like to hear, creative advice that you need, struggles you're having, successes you've had, really any and all of the above. We welcome them. You can email us at working at slate.com. We really do read those emails. Or you can call us and leave a message at three. 304-933-9675. That's 304-933-WORK. Thank you so much in advance, and we look forward to hearing from you. All right. So I will admit that my next question about a habit change is a little bit inside baseball for nonfiction writers, but I am pretty certain that there is some equivalent timing question that would apply to musicians Mm. and other artists. So One of the things I always dither about is when to do interviews with sources. I know that it's a great way to gather a lot of information quickly from people who were there, but I constantly hum and haw because part of me wants to be an expert before I talk to people. And, you know, that isn't a bad thing. Most advice on doing interviews says to, you know, read up as much as you can, be very prepared. And, you know, what we're talking about is good preparation. But The fact that I'm blathering on this way and that I constantly suspect that I'm procrastinating around this tells me that I don't feel I'm doing it right. So, Isaac, I'm curious, at what point in your research project do you like to start to talk to people? It depends on the project is the is the real answer. I often yeah. struggle with my inner introvert too, you know, like, oh, am I going to make a fool out of myself or, or whatever? I mean, for the Angels in America book, so Dan Coyce and I wrote this book called The World Only Spins Forward, The Ascent of Angels in America. It was an oral history. We spoke to 250 people. We had no choice but to start interviewing people immediately. Yeah. You know, you just leap in and you start interviewing. And one thing I learned from there is that it can actually be helpful to be really open about where you are in the process. Hey, you're mm-hmm. the first person who worked on the Chicago. Chicago production in 1998 that I've talked to. So if my questions are a little basic, that's why. And if you could just, you know, speak as exhaustively as possible to answer them would be a big help. You know what I mean? Or, hey, actually, you know, I spoke to these other six people, so I have like really specific questions for you, blah, 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 blah. So if you're in early research, you know, just call someone and say, hey, it's still early research. 
you know? The yeah. other thing is that there is a certain type of person. Here's an old interviewer trick, right? There's a certain type of person who really likes to educate the person who is interviewing them. And if you pick up on that vibe, playing a little dumb can get you a lot of good information. So it's sometimes to your advantage to not know or to act as if you don't know things. I will say on this new book, it's a mix of reporting and research and archival stuff and everything. I started doing interviews as soon as I reached the point where I was like, this article that I'm reading right now is telling me stuff I already know. Like there's one little detail or there's one quote that's interesting that might be good color, but I'm actually not learning anything new. I'm just getting different shades. Now it's time to call the people involved and ask them about their experience. But I actually maybe kind of wish I had done it earlier than that, to be totally honest. Every time I interview people, I'm like, eh, I should probably have done this earlier. Not that I think it's a mistake or the book is going to suffer as a result in this case, but more because like you just get so much and they're fun and interesting and you learn and it just really brings the project to life almost immediately. Yeah, that's a great point. It really does get you revved up about, oh, this is going to be cool. I, I can relate to that. And I'm so torn because I know that it can be counterproductive to like to know too much. I'm aware that I'll, I'm sometimes trying to impress the people I talk to mm -hmm. with my knowledge. You know, yeah, I've really read up on this. I really know my stuff. And there's a tendency when you do that for people to not say things yep. because you've kind of given them the impression you already know everything and they're they're just going to hold back everything but that one thing they think no one else knows. And that is really not a good process. And I think the other thing is to remember that you can always, well, almost always call them back yep. and get them to tell you more. You know, if, if down the line you realize, you know what, I didn't ask about this really important thing or I misunderstood, it's not like in most cases, you only have one chance to talk to them. Unless you've done something terrible to them or they've gotten ill or whatever, you can go back to them and find out more. Yes, absolutely. And in fact, I would double down on what you just said and say that trying to impress the person you're interviewing is almost always a bad idea. Yeah. The yeah. way you impress them is just by knowing your shit and hanging in the conversation. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. the way you don't impress them is to try to demonstrate how much you know. And there are some sources who will actually get offended by it, right? If you're talking about something that happened 20 years ago and you actually know more about some of the events than they do, like don't tell them that. You know, yeah. <laughs> they'll they'll get annoyed often. They'll be like, oh, OK, well, you already know this then or, you know, whatever it is. So. I think you and I have a kind of what my friend might call apple polisher side. You know, you want to be the good student and be recognized for being the good student. And I, I, I think that can really be a trap. What you want to do when you're interviewing, you know, the most important thing is to be present in that conversation with them and to listen to what they're saying and to kind of think, you know, one step ahead. And if you're instead thinking about what do they think about me, that's sort of using up, you know, cognitive bandwidth or whatever that could be better spent doing other things. That is so true, and I am going to try very hard to take that on board in the coming interviews that I'll be doing. We'll be back with more thoughts about changing up your creative habits after this. Hey, listeners, Isaac Butler again. Not going to take up too much of your time. I know you're just like itching to hear more, working overtime. I'm just going to ask you to, to maybe, if you're enjoying this uh, podcast, maybe subscribe to it. Maybe rate it or review it wherever you get your shows. That will actually really help drive new listeners to us. And if you've already done all that and you love what we do here, maybe think about subscribing to Slate Plus at slate.com slash working plus. You'll be supporting everything we do right here on Working and you get a whole bunch of 
other goodies besides. All right, back to the show. Okay, I want to talk about one last thing. And for me, it is kind of the easiest because it's a sort of yes, no, continue halt decision tree, but it's still very important. It's that I want to do a sort of audit of the expenses that I undertake for my creative work. As I mentioned on another episode of Working Overtime that ran at the end of 2023, I had a bunch of subscriptions that I thought of as being central to my creative process. That was an episode about getting help. And I talked about how subscriptions to things like Zoom that I use for interviews or the software I use to transcribe interviews is part of the ways that I get help. And so, you know, we spend money for things like that, but we could also be, you know, things like Microsoft Word or paying for streaming services or the way we access books. So committing to this kind of appraisal, it doesn't necessarily mean radically changing your habits. I can't imagine, for example, deciding that I don't want to spend money on books anymore, noticing references in bibliographies and tracking down the books and magazine articles you see there. That's probably the most helpful thing as far as learning more. So if you have any funds at all, getting your hands on books, even if there's no guarantee that they will contain nuggets of information gold, it's pretty much a semi-guarantee that it's a good use of your money. But we're not far from that time of year when American freelancers, at least, get to look at our income and expenses so we can do our taxes. So as you're totting up your expenses, just asking yourself if everything still feels necessary and if there's anything you can add or should add or anything you need to get rid of, that feels like a really useful kind of audit to do around your processes. Yes. And you know what a big one is if you're in the United States is cutting the cable cord, which we did this year. And uh, I feel really great about. No, I definitely need to do this. I mean, my wife and I, we review our household expenses and think about this stuff all the time. Right. But then there's the yeah, personal yeah. expenses the, for your career or whatever. And, I, you know, sometimes I, I, I don't always do this at the end of the year. I often do this like going through my credit card bills and just being like, what the hell is this $8 <laughs> a month subscription? Then you look it up and you're like, oh, I had to subscribe to this service to get one obscure article about Stanislavski that was published in the 1960s that's not available on JSTOR or, you know, whatever it is. That's not useful to me anymore, you know? But there are a lot of subscriptions that I find extremely useful for work. If you have to track people down, Spokio is really useful. I use newspapers.com all the time to look up local news from, you know, the various incidents that I'm writing about, things like that. But I will also say, I don't know about you, but I hate the subscription model for particularly software, particularly things like Microsoft Office. I think Office still offers you, you can either buy it or subscribe it to it. I don't really remember, but the subscription model just drives me insane. Having to have all those passwords drives me crazy. <sighs> Having to give my credit card number all the time to all these sites that are going to get hacked eventually drives me nuts. You know, I shouldn't have to subscribe to this stuff. I should be able to just buy it and use it until it breaks and then buy a new one. Do you know what I mean? And I wonder about this because I know you use a lot of, I don't know what you call it, productivity Zettelkasten, mind, space, shape, sphere, cross-index stuff. And I have a feeling that a lot of that is subscription-based, but I don't know. And, and if so, does that annoy you? Well, Isaac, you will be surprised perhaps to hear that the PKM space, that's of course, is personal knowledge management. Oh, yes, of course. I knew definitely what that meant. <laughs> 
That space is very competitive at the moment, so a lot of those apps are still available at no cost, including my preferred app, Obsidian. Still, it is definitely annoying that so much software has shifted to a subscription model. In some cases, I am, I guess I would say, semi-chill about it and kind of semi-fredo, you know, because (laughs) I still want small companies to have a consistent funding model so they can invest in their products and keep improving how they work. But I don't think that really applies to huge beasts like Adobe or, yes, my former employer, Microsoft. I do want to mention, though, that there are also options like Setup, where you subscribe to a kind of whole suite of software products. So, you know, if you subscribe to Setup, you get access to a whole lot of other software for your $10 per month or however much it is. So if you have an app you love, stick with it. But if you're still shopping, it might be worth trying out Setup and kind of similar services Mm. to that. That is fascinating. I will say it's like anything you can do to simplify this, right? You know, it's like I did yes. cut the cable cord, but I now subscribe to 75 streaming services. Exactly. Right? You know, but anything you do to kind of simplify this stuff is helpful because then you can think about it less and spend more time thinking about your creative endeavors. Truly. And if you would like to spend more time thinking about your creative endeavors, well, go for it, because that's all the time we have for this episode. But let me leave you with one last piece of advice. I think you should subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have any ideas for things we could do better or questions you'd like us to address, we really want to hear from you. Send us an email at workingatslate.com or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. If you would like to support what we do, sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash working plus. You'll get bonus content, including exclusive episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Dakota Ring, bonus segments on shows like Working, full access behind the paywall on the Mothership site, and you'll be supporting what we do right here. Once again, that is slate.com slash working plus. Thanks, as always, to Working Overtime's producer, Kevin Bendis, and to our series producer, Cameron Drews. Both of them have creative habits that are perfect in every possible way. They can't possibly be improved upon. We'll be back on Sunday with a brand new episode of Working, and in two weeks, we'll have another episode of Working Overtime. Until then, get back to work. 